Let's bow and pray once more as we come to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege it is to freely gather here as your people, to hear your word this morning, to worship you together as a church family. Thank you for the gift of Lord's Day worship. And we ask that you use this time to point us to the rest that's found in Jesus Christ, entrusting in his name alone. Lord, I pray you'd help me as your servant to faithfully preach your word, to point to Jesus. Lord, I pray you to overcome my deficiencies as a messenger, that your message would be exalted, and that you would draw near to us by the power of your Holy Spirit to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I drive an old vehicle. It's 23 years old. And a 20-something in the life of a human, well, you're young. You're in good shape, perhaps the best shape of your life, but a 20-something life of a vehicle, you are on your last leg. And every now and again, I'm reminded that my 23-year-old car, I love it, by the way, it's awesome, uh, it's got 23-year-old technology. So some of you, if you ever have not seen a cassette deck tape in a car in your life, just come see me after the service. I'll show you. I can still play cassettes. The only place I know cassettes exist are up in the old choir room in the second floor. I can sometimes take sermons from the 1980s and pop them into my cassette player. CD player on top, too. If you don't know what a CD is, Come see me afterwards. <laughs> but I was reminded recently uh, of, of the use of new technology. You see, in my old 23-year-old car, when you back up in reverse, you have to do it the old-fashioned way, which I, I like. Back in driver's ed, they taught me, put the hand at 12 o'clock, put the other hand behind the headrest, look back. You've got to be alert when you're in reverse. And recently, I was, had a rental car. Long story short, had, we had an accident in our family car wreck. Uh, God graciously just preserved, protected our family, very thankful for that. Uh, but it put me in a uh, rental car for 30 days, and it was a new rental vehicle. It had sonar on the front and back. It, it was, it was kind of messing with me at first. What's all this beeping going on in this vehicle? But I, I loved it because it had a camera there. I could see in reverse. It would beep. It would tell me what was going on. And for 30 days, I got to drive with that new technology. Well, once our car was fixed and the, the rental was given back, I was back with 23-year-old technology. And the first time I got in my car, I started backing up without looking and had to remember, I don't have sonar in this vehicle. I certainly, I've got a tape deck, not a camera that shows me what's behind me. And I've got to go back to the old school way of being alert, hand at 12 o'clock behind the headrest, looking behind me, seeking to stay alert. Wasn't that a principle that comes to Christians spiritually? We've got to remain alert. In fact, a lot of the Christian life, in fact, Galatians 5.1, one of the main commands in the book of Galatians of standing firm, speaks to staying alert, staying alert to threats, staying to alert to what's around you, staying alert to anything that would seek to threaten freedom that Christ has purchased through his death and his resurrection. You see, in the book of Galatians, we see that the Apostle Paul wanted the Galatian Christians to stay alert. He wanted them to stand firm by faith alone and to stand firm in Christ alone and to remain alert to any threat that would stand in their way as a hindrance. Well, Christians, it's good for us this morning to consider the grace of Jesus Christ, how we cling to Christ by faith alone, and to remain alert to any threats in our life. And that's what Galatians chapter 5 addresses as we look at this passage this morning in verses 2 through 12. If you haven't already done so, turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. If you need to take that pew Bible in front of you, uh, open that pew Bible up. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to open up a copy of God's Word. So if you want to use that Bible in front of you, you can take it, turn to page 974, page 974. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. Let me read through all of this as we begin our time this morning. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. 
You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in Galatians chapter 5 this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this main idea down. This is what I want to unpack in our sermon. You either trust in your own works or in the finished work of Christ. You either trust in your own works or in the finished work of Christ. Anybody who tells you the Bible is just merely a bunch of commands hasn't read the book of Galatians. It took us about four and a half chapters to get to the first command in the book of Galatians, where Paul called the Galatians to become as he is, meaning to walk in freedom and Christ. And really, it's here in chapter 5 that we see commands. You see, the, the Apostle Paul, typical in his letters, what he would do is open up indicating what God has already done in Jesus Christ, opening up with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And it's out of that good news that there come commands for believers, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you from the moment of conversion, causing you to obey God's commands. And therefore, we see commands and imperatives in the Scriptures that through faith in Jesus Christ, we're called to obey. And there in the beginning of chapter 5 and verse 1, we looked last week at the theme verse, what I would say is the theme verse, of the book of Galatians. Back in 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And from that theme verse in Galatians, the Apostle Paul, he continues to speak and exhort the Galatians to remember that Christ has freed you to be free. So stand in freedom. That's what everything we see this morning in verses 2 through 12, it's connected to that command in verse 1, stand firm in the freedom that is yours in Jesus Christ. Now, the threat to the Galatian churches is that they were being tempted to turn back, to turn away from Christ and the freedom that Jesus Christ alone brings. They were being tempted to add the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's call to them is to stand firm in the freedom that is yours in Christ. Well, as we make our way through verses 2 through 12 this morning, two parts to our outline this morning, fitting for Reformation Sunday. First, in verses 2 through 6, stand firm by faith alone. And in verses 7 through 12, stand firm in Christ alone. Stand firm by faith alone. Stand firm in Christ alone. Let's first look in verses 2 through 6. Stand firm by faith alone. Now, throughout the first four chapters of the letter, Paul has been laying the foundation for walking in freedom in Christ. And now he directly addresses the threat that they were facing, the issue of circumcision. Now, the Judaizers, we've been thinking about them, they were the false teachers there that moved in very quickly in the region of Galatia to those churches when the apostle Paul left that region. And the Judaizers were telling these Gentile Christians, these these new converts in Galatia, that they could keep Jesus, but they needed to add the Old Testament law. Specifically, they needed to be circumcised, putting themselves under the Old Testament law if they really wanted to belong to God. So basically, Jesus plus your own works, Jesus plus something else. The promise of God and Jesus plus a little bit of your effort is the false gospel that they were being taught. And Paul's made it clear there is 
no other gospel. So here in verse 2, Paul's main warning to them. He's already defended his role as an apostle earlier in the letter, and here he appeals to his authority as an apostle handpicked by the Lord Jesus Christ, witness, eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. In verse 2 saying, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, why such a big deal about circumcision? I mean, why would that be such a threat to their lives spiritually? I mean, you may think it was an outward act, a physical surgery. I mean, what does this really have to do with their heart, their relationship with God, their trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, a little review on on circumcision. The Old Testament law, the nation of Israel was marked off as God's people. Of all nations on earth, God made a covenant with Israel, working amongst tiny little Israel, not because of anything good that they did, not because they were worthy of His love or His glory, simply because God chose them through Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that He would show His love and display His glory to the ends of the earth through this little people. They were marked off as God's people by the circumcision of infant males. That was one way through Abraham, connected to him as descendants. Uh, They were also given the law of all nations. They were given the law of Moses on Mount Sinai, given the Ten Commandments, a law that displayed God's holiness and his character, a law that pointed forward to Jesus, the Messiah, who would come to save God's people from their sin. And this mark of the Old Testament law of circumcision was being presented to these Gentile Christians as being necessary for salvation. That's what was being said. So it wasn't just merely the physical surgery here, but rather what it represented. They were being presented this as representing salvation. Jesus plus something, in this case, Jesus plus circumcision, if you truly wanted to be saved. So the false teachers there, the Judaizers in Galatia, were effectively telling them, They needed to become Jewish in order to become God's people. And Paul has a serious warning here. If you accept that message, and you'll show that you accept it by taking the step to be circumcised, he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you, meaning of no help to you. You can help yourself, or you can trust in Jesus for help. If you've heard this phrase, it's not in the Bible, that God helps those who help themselves. That is nowhere in the Bible. And the choice is yours. You can either try to help yourself, and sometimes that looks like Jesus plus a little bit of my help. Jesus plus my wisdom. Jesus plus my way. Jesus plus what I think is good and right. You can either live that way, or you can trust in Christ alone for help. Paul has a serious warning here, clearly saying, your final destiny is on the line here. If you put yourself under the law, then you're trying to gain your acceptance before God, trying to justify yourself on your own works, which means you're turning away from Jesus Christ. You can either trust in Jesus and His finished work on the cross, paying for sin, or you can trust in your own works. It's not possible to trust in both. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You'll either serve Jesus or you'll serve yourself. Now, trying to add some human work or wisdom to the gospel shows that someone thinks that the work of Jesus is not sufficient. It's it's lacking something, and that's what turning away from the gospel looks like. Sometimes, and in, in here in Galatians, we see sometimes turning away from Jesus, it looks very religious. It looks very moral. It, it looks socially acceptable. It's, it's you trying to earn your keep spiritually. Now, Paul points out that if you're going to trust in circumcision, then you're taking on a burden. You're turning away from Jesus, and you're taking on a burden by putting yourself under the law, because you can't just keep part of the Old Testament law. Look at the end of verse 3. They would be obligated to keep the whole law. Here's the problem with that. Who can keep the whole law? Even in its summary of Ten Commandments, 
Who can keep Ten Commandments this week? None of us. If you think you can, just read the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew chapter 5. He'll help you understand what lust uh, is really accompanied to, and things like murder is really accompanied to, to anger, lust connected to adultery. Who can walk this week without coveting what God's provided for your neighbor? Jesus makes it very plainly that the law, plain in the Sermon on the Mount, that the law exposes our sin. It shows our need to be forgiven, and it points to Jesus Christ as the only one who perfectly kept the law and can forgive us of our sins against God. You see, the problem is you can't keep the whole law. James chapter 2, verse 10 makes that clear. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If you want to rely on your own works, that's what you'll do, and you'll fail. The problem here was not merely the physical surgery of circumcision, but rather what it represented. They would be taking on the burden of the law and therefore turning away from Christ, the only one who can fully bear your burden before God. Jesus kept the whole law, perfectly loved God, and perfectly loved his neighbor, loved everyone that he came into contact with, and he paid the penalty for your law-breaking. The only one qualified to pay the penalty, truly God and truly man, he laid his life down to die on the cross to redeem you from your sin, if indeed you would trust in him. And you're either going to trust in his work or in your own. You can either seek to be justified by the law or you can seek to be justified by Christ alone, through faith alone in him. And if you attempt to be justified, made right with God, counted righteous before God by the law, Paul makes clear the severe consequences for those who try to justify themselves. Look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ. And then at the end of verse 4, you have fallen away from grace. Now the first thought, the first question that may pop into your mind when you hear this is Paul saying that Christians can lose their salvation? No. A good rule of basic Bible interpretation is that if something seems to suggest in a passage, if it seems to imply something, like, is this implying that you can lose your salvation? Well, then look to something that explicitly addresses that issue elsewhere in Scripture. Right? So, so let the, the implicit be interpreted by the explicit. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus explicitly says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul says in other letters explicitly in places, here's just a few, Romans 11, 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Can't lose them. He's explicitly saying that. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Again, just another place. This is littered throughout Paul's letters. Assurance of salvation to those who put their faith in Jesus. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The moment of conversion, if you truly put your faith in Jesus, Holy Spirit there, guarantee, deposit, down payment from God that you indeed will be preserved until the end. So clearly, you cannot lose your salvation, Christian. If Christ has saved you, He will sustain you until the end, our confidence found wholly in Him. So what do we make of this? Well, if the Galatians would turn to trusting in the law to be saved in their own effort, well, they would show that they never really trusted in Jesus to begin with. Now, it's important to know the truth that you can't lose your salvation. But I wonder if we as Christians, that's what we think about when we read these verses and then we just kind of move on. Like, okay, yeah, uh, falling away from grace. Yeah, you can't lose your salvation. I, yeah, Paul's warning them. Okay, cool. Let's keep going in this letter. Well, are you tempted to skip over these warnings? Are, are you tempted to skip over them so quickly that you're not impacted by the weight of these warnings? 
Well, we'll consider, who did Paul write these warnings to? He wasn't warning the false teachers. He was saying they talk about Jesus, but they're not really Christians. He wasn't warning just a few people, like, hey, these kind of few who are really weak in your faith, I'm going to warn you. Like, you're the less mature Christians in the church. Get this warning. No, he warned the entire church. He was giving this warning generally to Christians. These warnings addressed to the entire church, and therefore, we would do well as an entire church this morning to sit and listen to this warning. doesn't matter how new you are in your faith, how mature you are in your faith, how much you know of theology and the Bible. We would all do well to sit and consider this warning. You know, one challenge is that it's sometimes too easy for Christians who believe in the glorious doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that God preserves us by His grace, that those who believe that once saved, always saved, to just kind of skip over these warnings and not let the gravity of these warnings affect you in a way that would bless your soul. Tom Schreiner, New Testament scholar, who we had the privilege of hearing from in this pulpit back in January, his writing that I read in his commentary this week really impacted me in this respect, because candidly, I think sometimes I'm too quick to skip over these things and just think, okay, check, God preserves His people. I want to make sure that our church is clear on that. And his writing impacted me. He said this, the warnings are the means God uses to preserve the faith of those whom He has chosen. The severity of the warning is intended to provoke the readers to keep trusting Christ until the end. Christian, do you take these warnings seriously? How do these warnings affect you? I love what Shiner says. They're the means God uses to preserve Christians. And if we want to take them seriously, then we need to be reminded, it needs to sit on us, If you rely on your own works for acceptance before God to try to earn His favor or to keep His favor, ultimately where that path is going to lead you is to turning away from Jesus, renouncing Jesus. And for those who renounce Jesus, there is no hope for salvation on the last day. That warning's there as an intended blessing for your soul. Keep trusting Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Keep going. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep asking for His help. Keep seeking His ministry in your life to love God, to love people, to obey His Word. Christian, we need to hear and heed this warning. One clear takeaway Guard your doctrine. Paul gives a warning to Timothy elsewhere in 1 Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, on your life and doctrine, how you live and what you believe. And isn't that what the ministry of the local church is all about? Helping us live the Christian life, helping us grow in knowledge of God's Word. Stay alert. Don't put it in reverse and not look. Be alert. Be aware of your surroundings. What threatens your life in holiness? And what threats do you face in doctrine? Well, in verses 5 and 6, we see a contrast of the right posture. So there's warnings there and 2 and 3 and 4. In verses 5 and 6, there's a turn. There's a contrast of the right posture that Christians are to have toward God. I love this picture here. The Christian life is lived through the Spirit by faith until the end. Let me repeat that. The Christian life is lived through the Spirit by faith until the end. It's the right posture that we see in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, the hope of righteousness is the confident expectation. That's what hope is, confident expectation. That on the last day, when Jesus returns, those who've trusted in Him will finally be declared 
righteous. Now, to be sure, at the moment of conversion, all those who place their faith in Jesus have already been declared righteous, forgiven of your sins, your sins counted as Jesus, His righteousness counted as yours at the moment of conversion when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, we're not finally saved yet. If you're here this morning, you're not finally saved. What I mean is this. You're saved from the penalty of sin through faith in Jesus. You're saved from the power of sin over you, but you're not yet saved from the presence of sin. We live in a sinful world. We are tempted in so many ways at so many times. We need to regularly confess our sin against God. We live in the presence of a sinful place. We struggle with the temptations of the flesh. We must wait as Christians because the completion is yet to come. When we're finally with the Lord and fully inherit all that Christ has promised, meaning we see Him face to face. This life is over. The next life begins. Sin and its presence, forever away from it, fully in the presence of the Lord. We wait for that day in hope, in confident expectation that all those who put their faith in Jesus have been dressed in His righteousness alone, prepared, faultless, to stand before the throne. We live between that day and today. And who knows how long that will be. I hope it comes soon when Jesus returns. I I realize you've heard me say this a dozen times or more. I hope I'm alive when Jesus returns. What a glorious day that will be for the church on earth when Jesus comes back to finish off what he started. You see, Christians, we persevere until that day not by trusting in the law. We persevere until that day not by relying on ourselves. You don't start the Christian uh, race by faith and finish by works. That's not at all. Paul's correcting that era. We as Christians persevere until the end through relying on the Spirit, walking by faith, and waiting patiently with hope in God's promises. When it comes to salvation, circumcision or any other human work doesn't matter in terms of playing a role in your justification. To be clear, Paul also says uncircumcision doesn't matter. Meaning for those believers who were not circumcised, Gentile believers, they should not be proud. They shouldn't say, well, look at me. I'm stronger in my faith. I'm not like them. I don't need circumcision. I mean, isn't what faith does is it turns us away from looking at ourselves in pride and points us to Jesus Christ, who before him there is no room for boasting. There's no room for confidence in the flesh. It's a great reminder, don't be prideful for what you've done, and don't be prideful in what you've not done. Both attitudes are self-righteous, and turn away from Jesus and His righteousness. Faith and faith alone is what matters. Faith turns away from self-righteousness to trust in Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. End of verse 6. I love that. Love is an essential fruit of faith. Genuine faith in Christ will have the accompanying evidence of love. Protestant reformer Martin Luther He said we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The brother will be right there, love and hope. He lays out the triad, actually, faith, love, and and hope. Christian, you're justified by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Wherever faith is, there's love and there's hope. They will know we're Christians by our love. They will know we're believers by our Love. The Christian life, it's a life unto the end of faith, hope, and love. And genuine faith will work itself out in love, loving God and loving others. Isn't that what fulfills the whole law? And it's only possible through the presence of Jesus Christ in you. Martin Luther again says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. They have a place. 
God doesn't need your good works. God is not impressed with your good works. God does not somehow treat you more favorably because of your good works. But those good works are a blessing to your neighbor, a blessing to your spouse, a blessing to your kids. Those good works are a blessing to other church members, a blessing to those who don't know Jesus. Be zealous for them. Uh, Keep focused on them. Be alert when you're not walking in good works, but make sure they're in their proper place. They will do nothing for your salvation before God. It is only by faith alone that you cling to Jesus Christ alone. Well, who do you trust? Jesus and his finished work or your own works? The biblical gospel, the one true gospel, the only one you can trust for salvation of sin, Jesus Christ alone. Not Jesus plus your good works or your best intentions or your best effort. Not Jesus plus your knowledge. Not not Jesus plus your good church attendance. Not Jesus plus your baptism. Not Jesus plus your church membership. Jesus plus nothing. Trusting Him alone. If you've come this morning and you call yourself a Christian, but you start listening to this and wondering, hey, have I really put my faith in Jesus plus my own good efforts? Happens a lot in America. Happens a lot amongst nominal Christians in America, meaning those who just generally believe in Christmas and Easter but haven't really trusted in Jesus. Talk to someone who brought you this morning. Talk to any of your pastors at the doors afterwards. We'd love to talk to you more about what it would look like to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone this morning. Second part of what we see here in this passage, verses 7 through 12, stand firm in Christ alone. Stand firm in Christ alone. Christian, do you remember when you were first converted? It's okay if you don't know when it is. Sometimes when you grow up in a Christian uh, family, your parents are Christians, you heard the gospel, you may struggle to know when is that exact moment. You may think you know the exact moment. Actually, you'll get to heaven one day and realize you're wrong on that. The most important thing is that you know this morning, and you have assurance this morning, indeed, by God's grace, your faith is in Him. But for some of you, you can remember the moment of your conversion when you first believed. You can remember the joy. You can remember the zeal. You can remember the excitement. You can remember hearing books like Galatians for the first time and not being tempted to think, yeah, I know this. Yeah, I'm familiar with this. That's why I'm so thankful for new Christians here in our church. It just encourages us in zeal and passion that is right. The start of the Christian life, it should be wonderful like that. It should be full of passion and joy. The continuation of the Christian life should also be. We often face temptations and trouble and struggles And the reality is, as life goes on as a Christian, we struggle with things that we feel like we shouldn't be struggling with anymore. If we're perfectly honest, we'd like to come to church and think, man, I heard this sermon, I got it, boom, I'm done, I'm walking perfect, from in this area at least, from this way forward. Problem solved, and I can get on to the things I want to get on to. If there's anything I've learned as a Christian and learned from other Christians here, that's not the way of the Christian life. That's a way of trusting in yourself more. The Christian life is one of trusting in Jesus more. And as you get more mature in Christ, you start to hear sermons and think, wow, look at where I fall short. Mm, I thought I'd be past this by now. Why do I keep talking to my spouse this way? Why do I keep struggling with impatience with my roommates or my kids? Why do I keep desiring and coveting what God hasn't given me? And the gospel reminds us you're forgiven, forgiven of all that sin. Christ has paid for all of it. And the gospel reminds the believer Christ is enough. He will strengthen you. And the race forward, one foot in front of another, not fast growth from now until eternity. Typically, the normal pattern of Christian growth, slow, steady growth, one step at a time. The Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of a race here to, to hammer that home. The rest of your life will be spent walking by faith. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Metaphor of a race there. He uses this metaphor of running a race to communicate perseverance for the long run. So Christianity, not a 100-yard sprint. Think about it, more akin to an ultra marathon that keeps going and going and going. Perseverance required. 
These Galatians had a great start as new converts, new churches, but they needed to persevere in the gospel. Look at verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? They'd put their faith in Jesus. They were running, but they were starting to slow down. And they were starting to turn back. Notice here that perseverance means obeying the truth. That's referring to the truth of the gospel. Now, with all of Paul's talk on justification by faith alone, sometimes people wonder, and sometimes some of you ask me down here at the door afterwards, which I'm happy to hear any questions about the sermon, what role does obedience have to play in the Christian life? And I've often said to you, it plays a big role. We're going to get the Lord willing to Galatians 5 eventually, and there's a lot there, even next week, 13 through 26, a lot there on the, the law of the Spirit, living under control of the Spirit, fruit being produced in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we see it even right here in verse 7 that true faith comes with obedience. Justifying faith produces obedience to God's commands. If you believe the truth, you will obey the truth. True faith keeps repenting, keeps trusting. I mean, after all, consider the final command of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Christ calls for His disciples to be taught to observe all that I commanded you, to observe or obey. Those who believe the gospel obey the truth. Again, the metaphor of a race reminds you as a Christian that, that past fruit in your life is not enough. Faith does not live off of last month's grace or last year's grace. Faith doesn't live off of the grace you had in a past season of life where you were really excited. Faith, rather, keeps seeking the Lord in the present, today. Faith clings to Jesus now. Christian, I wonder, where might you be coasting, or tempted to coast, rather, off of yesterday's grace? On past seasons of spiritual growth. Maybe there's areas of obedience that you gave attention to in the past, but have slowly kind of drifted away. I can think of one area, time in the Word. Maybe an area of obedience in your life, of abiding in the Word in the past. And I get it. Life gets busy. It gets full. Schedules change. Seasons change. Life changes. And sometimes those changes in life we allow those to become obstacles to us remaining consistent in areas that produce good fruit. And I love this understanding of the Christian life of just look back and ask the question, what did God bring fruit from in your life in the past? And seek His grace to keep giving yourself to that today. So maybe it's just not possible in your schedule to spend an hour in the Bible every morning like maybe you did in college. Or maybe you did before life got too busy. But is there enough time to spend 15 minutes even at night? Seek out help in doing that. Seek out another member of this church. Seek out help from a roommate in being in the Word. Consistency, I've been taught, is far more important than us holding to some depth of like, if I don't have an hour in a long time, if I don't feel like I've been listening to music and my heart is just uplifted and emotion stirred every morning, then it really didn't count. I think consistency helps me know, keep there, keep believing God's Word, keep knowing that you want it, keep obeying, and just wait for the Holy Spirit to use that to bring good fruit in your life today like He has in the past. Don't try to live off of yesterday's grace. Faith keeps seeking His grace today. Well, the Galatians needed to cast out what was hindering them with false teaching. And Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9 to say, this persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Consider how you started, now you've been hindered. This persuasion, this false teaching they were being persuaded by, consider the source, it was not from God, it was not from God who called them by grace, this was a message of human effort, not of grace, not of God, but of man. Paul's saying you started by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that's the way you must continue on. Now this teaching they were receiving was not pointing them to Jesus, but rather to sin. And leaven is a term used in the Bible often to refer to sin. So Paul takes a, a proverb about bread baking. 
It's kind of similar to saying something like, one rotten apple spoils the barrel. Just a little bit of sinful influence can spread and go a long way and cause a big mess. They may have thought, what's the big deal? I mean, Paul, all we want to do is get circumcised. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, what may have seemed like a, just a small adjustment in their mind was actually a huge step away from the gospel, a big threat, a threat that would ruin them and halt the race. If they followed the wrong teaching, a false gospel, if it was left unchecked, like leaven, it would spread throughout the whole church and ruin them. It's a serious situation. The stakes, they were high. Paul wasn't even with them. He was writing them a a letter. Yet he was confident. And his confidence is not in his own ability to persuade them. His confidence was not in their ability to read his letter and discern the truth and do the right thing. Look at where his confidence is found. In the Lord. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. God called them by his grace. Those churches in Galatia existed because of God's grace. Paul's confidence in the Lord. That's really helpful if you're trying to help someone grow spiritually. It's helpful if you're struggling spiritually to have confidence in the Lord, to keep trusting, to keep hearing his word and to be patient with yourself. It's encouraging if you're trying to help someone else grow and you're tempted to give up on them because they don't just seem to be getting it. It's helpful if you're a parent and you don't feel like you're seeing the fruit in the lives of your children that you've been praying for and working for and you're tempted to kind of just give up out of frustration. Paul doesn't give up on the Galatians. He has patience that's rooted in confidence in the Lord. He's confident that the Lord will give them perseverance. And look at the end of verse 10. He's confident that the Lord will judge the false teachers who are troubling Christians. There will be a penalty from the Lord for those who trouble His people. That's why Paul makes such a strong statement in verse 12. I'm not going to leave you a verse 12. I thought about that this week. I'm not going to leave you a verse 12 and send you off with a benediction. I want to talk about it now. We're going to finish with verse 11. That's why Paul makes such a strong statement in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, tell us how you really feel, Paul. One scholar referred to this as the crudest and rudest expression in all of Paul's writing. And I will just let the text speak for itself there. What we see simply is Paul expressing the penalty and the judgment coming to those who trouble God's people. But what we see here is his disgust for a false gospel and warning to those who would follow that. But what we also should see here, Christian, take comfort. The Lord takes care of his people. The Lord protects his people. The Lord watch over, watches over his people and the power of the gospel will prevail, period. The power of the gospel will not be stopped. Paul's aim was to preach the cross of Jesus Christ alone. That's the aim of all Christian preaching. We preach the message of the cross. Christ alone is the hope that all Christians continually rejoice in. And as he defends himself in verse 11, he points to the aim of preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, again, the situation in verse 11, evidently the false teachers accused Paul of preaching circumcision when he was around the Jews, but not doing so when he's around the Gentiles. They were just saying, yeah, Paul, he's inconsistent. He's going to preach one thing to one group and another thing to another group. That seems to be the accusation here. Now, you might be familiar with the situation in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, when Paul had Timothy circumcised. However, Paul never preached circumcision as being the part of the Christian life or having any role in salvation. Again, the physical surgery is not the issue he was so concerned about in Galatia, but rather that circumcision represented a spiritual issue in their heart of trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Circumcision was being presented as a way to justify themselves before God 
And Paul was having none of that. He refutes this accusation by reasoning from his own persecution. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. If Paul was still preaching circumcision like he was back when he was Saul, back when he was persecuting Christians, if he was still preaching that message, if his message hadn't changed, then he would not have offended the Jews. He would have avoided persecution. That's his reasoning. His message changed just like his name did. From Saul to Paul, and from a message of circumcision to the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. He preached the cross. You see, the cross makes much of Jesus Christ. Preaching the cross does not make much of people. You can't make much of the cross and of human effort. You see, at the cross, Jesus accomplished what human effort was incapable of securing. Preaching the cross puts us in our proper place as sinners and Christ in His proper place as Savior, the only one that can save you and deliver you from your sin against God. You see, preaching the cross exalts God's love demonstrated by Jesus, the sinless Savior, dying in your place as a substitute, paying the penalty that we deserve because of our sin against a holy God. And preaching the cross, it points to the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that He rose from the dead on the third day to bring new life. Spiritual circumcision of the heart to anyone who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. What do you want? Circumcision, the work of humans, or the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? You will choose one or the other. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it's almost like Paul is taking that passage and right here giving them a choice. No one can serve two masters. You're either going to serve yourself and trust in your own works or you'll trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, the danger that we see here in the book of Galatians is that some, they want Christianity, they want Jesus without a cross. It's offensive to some to preach the cross. They like preaching Jesus. Jesus is a pretty good guy. Jesus is a, a good teacher. But it's offensive to some that there would be a suggestion that your sin before God is such a big deal that you deserve God's judgment and His wrath. It's offensive to some that the only way to be forgiven of your sin is to repent of that sin by turning to Jesus and trusting in His death on the cross. They like the idea of Jesus as a good example, but despise the idea that Jesus needed to die on the cross in order to save us, that we need someone to take the penalty for our sin. They're happy to speak of the love of Jesus, but cringe at the thought that our only hope is found in Christ and Him crucified. The resurrection means nothing to them because the cross bears no significance. Their hope is not in Christ alone, but in Jesus plus being a pretty good person. That is a different gospel. And there is no other gospel. Christians know the glory of the gospel is found in Christ crucified, risen from the dead for your forgiveness, extending new life and righteousness from God to all who would repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And Christian, that message of the cross, it must catch our gaze more and more. Again, sometimes we want the Christian life to be a sprint. We want to sprint in here to church, hear a message, and be done with our problems. But the reality is, Paul tells us it's a race. It's an ultra marathon. You heard the solution here this morning. Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. But you know what? After this benediction, we're going to go back and probably face our problems and be more aware of them, maybe even than when we came here, which is a blessing. We're going to face our fallen nature, our shortcomings. We're going to face trials of various kinds, some of which we, we don't anticipate will happen this week. It's a marathon that will go through temptations and trials, clinging to Jesus by faith alone the whole time. And the cross calls us to keep repenting, keep believing. 
And I leave you with this question, Christian. As time goes on, is the cross of Christ getting larger in your view or smaller? By getting larger, I mean that you keep looking to Jesus for strength. The cross gets bigger and bigger. But as time goes on in your Christian walk, you see the need for him more and more, not less and less. You see, if the cross is getting smaller, that means you're starting to rely on your own effort, on Jesus plus something. But standing by faith alone means that we keep clinging to Christ alone. And those who by God's grace alone persevere until the end keep clinging to Christ alone by faith alone. A life of faith, love, and hope until the end. May we know the joy of continually clinging to the finished work of Jesus Christ. For the Christian, our hope is built on nothing less. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's bow and pray. Father, we ask that you would turn our eyes to Jesus. He is the solid rock. In him there is freedom and life and forgiveness and free righteousness. In him there is confidence and strength to seek your grace today, to be strengthened for today and however long you give us. In him there is strength to persevere until the end. Lord, we pray you draw near to us as believers this morning. Help us to find comfort and courage in the cross of Jesus Christ. And for whoever is here this morning who doesn't know you, Lord, we ask that you would pursue them. We ask that you would win them over. We ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may you turn our eyes to him now as we close this service. In Jesus' name, amen.